This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have Professor Robert Patman, who's from the University of Otago, is an expert in the field of international relations. We'll be talking about the effect of COVID-19 on change international politics. Welcome to Community or Chaos, hopefully more community. Morning, Marvin. And thanks a lot for uh, coming in early. Oh, you're welcome. How has COVID-19 changed international politics? Well, I suppose many people will say it's too early to say, and we're still, you know, we're not through COVID-19 yet. But I think it's a, it has been defined as a disruptive event, an event which will leave the world in a different place than it was before. And um, it's fair to say that the post-Cold War era has been quite a turbulent one. We've seen, um, in many respects, the world's been caught between the opposing forces of uh, nationalist fragmentation and possibly um, uh, what might be described as the forces of integration, the the fact that the world's becoming a smaller place. And um, globalisation has been the common denominator here, this process of technologically driven change, which has made a tremendous difference. It's made... Um, it's been driven by a communications revolution and digital revolution uh, that began in the early 80s, but it's gathered momentum. And that sort of set the scene, I think, um, for the backdrop to COVID-19 in many respects. And and COVID-19, to some degree, has split opinion along the lines of the two trends that we saw even before COVID-19. There are those who argue that the uh, events of COVID-19, to some degree, um, have reinforced um, the idea um, that nationalism, particularly vaccine nationalism, is in the ascendancy at the expense of international cooperation. Now, according to this perspective, deglobalization, protectionism, and intensified great power rivalry Uh, between the likes of the United States and China will usher in a world uh, where the nation states rule once again. On the other hand, 
There are observers that believe that COVID, the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdowns it, inca- it occasioned has turbocharged the development of digital networks from everything to health, uh, from healthcare to, to business. And according to this view, globalization is certainly not the casualty of COVID-19. Rather, the pandemic has made the world even more interdependent and highlighted, if anything, the self-interested logic of enhanced global cooperation uh, to deal with a deadly virus that doesn't respect borders. And uh, as we speak today, uh, there's much concern about a new variant of COVID-19, Omicron. And to some extent, Omicron highlights the fundamental problem of the response to COVID-19 by states. It's been a piecemeal effort and um, it's allowing mutations to occur. And what it has exposed, what COVID-19 has exposed, is the complete absence of an authoritative global public health authority to deal with these problems. Problems which do not recognise boundaries. And, you know, COVID-19 is not alone in in that sense. I think on balance, Marvin, um, the second scenario of the fact that kicking and screaming, states are going to have to learn to cooperate much more fully with each other not because they wish to, but because they have no choice, because the problems they face, like COVID-19, climate change, transnational terrorism, the list goes on, are simply bigger than any one state, including superpowers to fix. So when you're confronted with problems that by definition require international solutions, sooner or later, the logic of international cooperation will kick in, uh, not least because of self-interest. Hasn't uh, what's happened with the new variant uh, partly because the, both the drug companies and the nation states that could afford it have not put enough effort into the poorer countries, particularly Africa? And doesn't that make new variants more prone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've put your finger on the key problem. And the response of many governments when first confronted with COVID-19 If you look at the Trump administration in the United States, the Johnson government in the UK, uh, the Urban government in Hungary, the Bolsonaro government in Brazil, their responses were, first of all, to deny the problem, then concede it was a a variant of flu, uh, which would soon pass. Then they stressed their national exceptionalism that no virus would would bend their national character out of shape. And eventually... They had to concede they had a major problem and they b- responded late with disastrous consequences. Um, Most of them so, responded. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm not sure Brazil's responded at all. Well, sorry? The, the politics well, of that's Brazil right. responded, I mean, uh, but the leader of Brazil hasn't. But it's been disastrous. Yes, hopefully for him. For, 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 so, but the problem, the issue you've raised is another one. Not only have we seen governments behave in idiosyncratic fashion to a deadly virus uh, we're lucky we happen to be in a country which responded i think reasonably quickly and also took on board healthcare expertise public healthcare expertise fully uh, listen carefully to that advice we also showed a willingness to learn 
from the experience of other countries, such as countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, which experienced this before us and dealt with it successfully. We learned from them. And so that was important. Um, interesting thing about this crisis, Marvin, is that um, New Zealand has looked to East Asia rather than Europe or North America to how to deal with COVID-19. Um, but you're right. The question you've pinpointed is that the inequality that exists between countries in the world, the, between the haves and the have-nots, um, that, that inequality has certainly been accentuated by COVID-19. Uh, at the moment, you're probably following the discussions around the outbreak of Omicron, sorry, Omicron, um, and South Africa has argued that it did everything right, that it um, it uh, found out it has quite a, an impressive healthcare capability, not least because it had to deal with HIV for many decades, and it identified this problem. And they say they're now being penalised for a problem which was already present in other countries. But people are behaving as if it's just come out of South Africa. So that's their claim. But I think the other thing to note here is, is a country like South Africa, about 23%, 23% of the population have been vaccinated. And also many sub-Saharan African countries, the average is 7%. Now, in New Zealand, we're approaching 90%. So it shows you the lack of resources, the fact these countries weren't able to order supplies of vaccine way in advance like many developed countries because they don't have the sort of resources, shows that in, in a sense, um, it, it shows the, the tremendous inequality in real terms that exists. And it does become, when you've got something like um, COVID-19, such inequality is the, sometimes also an expression of a matter of life and death. It also shows to a certain extent in some, or for instance in America, the inequality within a country. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, America has lost, what, 750,000 people, and that's a tragedy for the richest country in the world. It's a tragedy. I mean, Britain's a tragedy that the United Kingdom has lost more than 150,000. We're not making these points to drive any satisfaction. But what, as I say, what to me, if you look in the big picture here, we are increasingly confronted as a international community. We are increasingly confronted with problems which are too big for nation states to fix. There's no, there's no unilateral problem solution to COVID-19. And I think one thing is quite clear that neither superpower came out of the COVID-19 crisis with much credit. Both of them blamed each other for a virus they could neither control nor resolve. Uh, so in, in a sense, um, we need to think about authoritative international institutions which have got the ability to reduce, reduce this, to deal with this problem quickly because I think it was the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, made the point, and I think it's a good point, that with COVID-19, no one is safe until it, mm -hmm. everyone is, is safe. Unfortunately, we have no institution which can ensure that.
because we have no global institution that can deal with that problem. And the same with climate change. Technology may give us tools and so on, but the, whether we accept internationalization and whether what, what drives it and what purpose we use for it, that's a, a political question, isn't it? Yes, and um, as I say, we the way international affairs has been organised has been along the lines of compartmentalisation, nation-states. And we can't expect that process to change in the near future. But what we can expect is governments to increasingly recognise that they're limited in their capacity to deal with problems and it's smarter to pool their resources with other countries to sort out a problem which is haunting all of them. And um, this is, of course, quite a big paradigm shift. But nothing, you know, if you think about it, is there's nothing wrong with evolution in international affairs. Why should it say, you know, why should we stick by the rigid notion that nation states run the world when they clearly don't? Um, when they're confronted with problems which are much bigger than them. And uh, that is one of the challenges that we face. Um, many young people are much, yet, much because they've lived in the internet era from the word go, don't see the world in such compartmentalized terms. And so I would be very surprised if we do not see an evolution generally in the post-COVID-19 era, or even during it, uh, in the next few years, because Certainly, it seems to me that the world's simply not going to be the same after the COVID-19, and there's no point in pretending we can go back Brexit to actually the previous brought situation. Out the generational divide, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, almost all of the young people who bothered to vote in Brexit uh, voted to stay because voted for the European Union, really. Now, we don't want, we're not here to talk about that, but as you no. point out, the difference in thinking and awareness. I think young people are much yet, have much less problems with thinking holistically about problems and don't see things in such compartmentalized world. I mean, in a sense, the internet is a bit of a borderless space. And um, I, I think also there is a passion and indeed an anger amongst young people that problems like climate change have not been sorted out. And the other thing is that, you know, many of us, um, the interesting thing is that vaccine nationalism is a recipe for prolonging this current crisis and also ensuring there'll be more mutations of a deadly nature. One of the reasons there's more mutations like um, Omicron is the fact that we've been relatively slow to deal with this problem. I don't mean, I don't mean just New Zealand, I mean everywhere. Yeah. And, of course, that, that all the time increases the prospects of another mutation. What role has... Jacinda Ardern played on the world stage, and what more can she and other leaders of small and medium-sized nations do to fill the leadership vacuum left by 
the superpowers who seems to have um, dropped the ball? Um, I think there's considerable scope, not just for New Zealand, but for a number of other small and middle-sized countries. Uh, what's happened is an opportunity has opened up. How's it been created? In the post-Cold War era of the last three, four decades, um, countries which are really big, such as the United States and, and um, China and to a lesser degree Russia, they certainly had the capacity to act unilaterally using their national resources. What they don't have the capacity to do, though, is to deliver success. There's few examples of successful unilateral action in the post-Cold War era. And that means that superpowers can block international solutions. They all, they, most of them have, in fact, all three of them, the ones I've mentioned, plus Britain and France, have the capacity to wield the veto in the UN Security Council. So they can act as spoilers. They can block international solutions they don't like, but they can't actually put anything in the place of those international solutions. And so we, we're falling between two stalls in this world. We're getting the worst of both worlds. We, we, we're blocking in, we haven't got the machinery for effective international resolution of problems, but unfortunately, no nation states can step up to the plate and say, don't worry, guys, I'll fix it for you. None of them can do it. So we're in a bit of an international transition. Now, this has created an opportunity for the smaller and middle players to make, play a much bigger role because these problems we're talking about, like COVID-19, climate change, transnational terrorism, because those problems, by definition, require international solutions, that means the smaller players and the bigger players are part of that solution. And... Um, the question is, however, is whether they're going to take that opportunity that's now emerging. There's a couple of, I think, interesting things. In July 20, uh, 2021, uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern chaired an extraordinary meeting of APEC leaders to focus exclusively on COVID-19 and to secure recognition in, in, in Ms. Ardern's words that nobody is safe from this virus until, until everyone is safe. In other words, the Prime Minister had used her chair of APEC to initiate an extraordinary meeting which she reminded all present, including the United States, China and Russia, that they can't afford to be shilly-shallying and spurning multilateral cooperation on an issue they couldn't fix. Um, then a more recent 2021 APEC economic leaders meeting, um, Prime Minister Ardern underscored the persistent challenges brought about by the pandemic and reaffirmed the benefits of multilateral cooperation in, um, in addressing. The other thing we should note, um, which is related to this challenge for small and middle powers, is that quite apart from these examples, we've also seen in another sphere, that is transnational terrorism, an example of a small player, which is New Zealand, cooperating with a middle power, France, to 
pursue what was called the Christchurch Call, an initiative to curb online extremism. Now, what was important about this, Marvin, is that 55 countries quickly signed up to an initiative launched by a small and middle-sized power, and initially the United States under Mr. Trump spurned it. But the Biden administration now has signed up to it. So this is a precedent of where two smaller players in international affairs, New Zealand and France, have taken initiative because the bigger players were not prepared to do it. And eventually the bigger player said, yep, I'll I'll have a piece of that. I'll join that initiative. So I don't think the United States, China and Russia have a monopoly on international initiative to solve problems that are confronting many players. Do you think that with the new um, leadership in Germany, they'll take more... uh, the European Union may, t- uh, may take more initiatives? Or is that hard to say? Very difficult to say. Um, the European seems to be quite divided in many respects uh, at the moment. And I think COVID-19, uh, you just look at a country like the Netherlands, which has been a very stable, constructive player in the EU, has been experienced very big demonstrations against lockdowns and vaccination. And so, and I think Germany also has struggled on that front. Um, But yeah, the hope must be in the long term that the EU can show some leadership on issues like COVID-19, climate change, because these are problems which, whether we like it or not, are going to impact on us. Uh, they're not problems that can be safely ignored. And uh, science and respect for professional expertise in the relevant areas is very important. And one of the things, one of the lessons I take from COVID-19, but I think you can also take it, probably it may apply to climate change, is that countries which have embraced science and have taken evidence and expertise very seriously have dealt more effectively with COVID-19 than those who have mocked the experts and assumed that COVID-19 would adhere to their political rules, which, of course, it won't. Um, I suppose with COVID-19, that's different. Uh, with uh, I suppose with um, climate change, that's different because it, it is such an all-encompassing problem. And... Um, it's, it'd be very, you know, it, it's affecting countries. I mean, the cruel thing about climate change is it is most affecting countries which have done the least to contribute to the problem, as you can see in the Pacific area. I was quite surprised, and I think you may have been too, with the outcome of the elections in Chile. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's wanna, interesting, isn't it? Is that a trend, or is that... Um, a- Unique to Chile. Yeah, this is this is where um, Antonio Cast um, won the uh, Jose Antonio Cast, the right uh, far right candidate, who's a Trump's supporter, also um, a big Chin- uh, Pinochet supporter, um, got a narrow lead. 
in the first round of the presidential election. We, we should say to our listeners that in Chile there were elections, I think it was on the 21st of November, in which um, decided the president was supposed to decide the presidency, uh, the Congress or the parliament, as well as the um, regional councils. Um, in that contest, um, Mr. Cast, the, the right-wing populist candidate, got a 2% lead, which means there will have to be a presidential runoff. Uh, I think the, con- the other contender is Gabriel uh, Bozic, or Boric, or Boric, and um, uh, an ex-student leader who's 35. And most people expected him to get the upper hand, but that's not happened. And the interesting thing is, why why has this happened? Because in the last two years, we've seen some extraordinary demonstrations against inequality in Chile, and many people expected that Boris would therefore probably be, the, be the, on paper the contender to prevail. It should be pointed out that Chile, since 1990, since it's become a democracy, and since the Pinochet regime has gone, um, the Pinochet dictatorship left in 1990 and has had democracy since then, uh, Chile has had quite a successful encounter with a sort of trickle-down economics, a liberalised economy. And, of course, this is, from New Zealand's point of view, this is one of the most important countries in Latin America because uh, we it's a country where New Zealand has long ter- had a long term diplomatic presence and also it's a country where Fontera are present and there's quite substantial New Zealand investments in Chilean agriculture so the country has certainly in the last two years undergone um, demonstrations and protests uh, and those protests have been over two things one I've already mentioned which is unequal access to education and healthcare, um, where many Chileans believe it was largely determined by financial means. And a second factor, which has intensified the demonstrations, has been COVID-19, which in many respects has highlighted the the problem of inequality within Chile. Uh, Many people affected by COVID-19 have not been able to get the same sort of health care to those who have private health care insurance. So, uh, there yeah, was, I mean, that, there was those low two turnout, Fairly Sorry. low turnout for a presidential election, wasn't there? Sorry? Fairly low turnout, I believe, about yes. 40, 47% or a little lower. Yeah, and um, of course, this result may have the effect of galvanizing people. They may... So... I don't think it's over for, I don't think um, Jose Cast has necessarily won yet, but the, the you know the the second presidential election will be in December, the runoff election, and it looks like a two horse race between Cast and Boric. So we'll just have to wait and see. But um, why why have the right done well in what has been turbulent circumstances? I think one explanation is that some Chileans have responded to Cast's rhetoric. Cast has argued 
that he's been anti-migrant, like most populist leaders. And Chile has a population of about 19 million people. And over a million of those would have been uh, uh, from other countries. And recently, lots of refugees have arrived in Chile from countries like uh, uh, Haiti and also Venezuela, two countries which have experienced uh, political troubles. Um, and Cast has said that he'll end this. He sort of used the metaphor of digging a ditch around Chile to prevent new refugees coming in. So he's advocating a tough line. He's also saying that Chile has been uh, handicapped or held back by these constant protests, and he wants law and order. Um, thirdly, he's promised to bring economic stability. So some of these promises may have struck a chord with Chileans who feel who have blamed the protesters for the country's problems. Um, and in a set, you know, so if, if it might, for some Chileans with quite long memories, they would recall that for much of the post-Cold War period, Chile has enjoyed, in compared with most Latin American countries, pretty good economic growth. And they may believe that that's all at risk now, particularly if the country takes a more leftward direct a left direction and so that cast may have been able to exploit those concerns amongst some chileans if you like the haves that they may be uh, what what they have worked for may be at risk and he may have exploited that mm. sense of grievance and vulnerability one of the things you find around the world is that the haves are more likely to vote than the have nots well, that's that. That may also have a lot to do with the result we've just seen in the first round. That the haves decided that they had to be at the races, and the have-nots, who may have mounting problems, may have decided that voting wasn't the most important thing in their life. We we'll have to see. It's not over yet. You know, a lot of people, I think, were shocked by the fact that Jose Cast came first in the first round, um, but. It's only 2% or so dividing the two contenders. Um, what is clear, however, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, that the election wasn't just about the position of presidency. It was about the Congress, the Chilean Congress, and also regional councils. And what is clear there, Marvin, is that there has been um, some impetus towards the right in the new representation of the Congress and regional councils, which means um, even if Boris stays a comeback in the second round and gets the presidency, he could find that a lot of his plans for transforming Chile um, to increase the public health care sector, to improve access to public education, could be thwarted or stymied by a more, more conservative uh, legislature. Does the legislature Chile. or parliament... Um, have elections more often than the presidential election? I'm not sure that I know what... No, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not a Chilean expert, so <laughs> I, I think I'd have to defer on that one. Okay. Well, I'm going to play some music and then we'll come back. Sure.
This guitar came from a timber, from the body of a tree, through the workshop of a luthier. Now it's on loan to me, and it's good company after dinner, and it fits my hands just fine. But someday another singer, with a pair of hands like mine, will coax out songs much prettier, still hiding in its strings. Sing stronger, braver words than I could ever sing, and folks are gonna love it. Of this I'm almost sure, so I take good care of it, 'cause I'm borrowing it from her. Pass it along, pass it along. May it land in careful hands when we're gone. Carry it for a moment. Time won't loan it to you for long. You don't own it. Pass it along. This here is my country. Sometimes it's hard to recognize it, but I count myself lucky to have been born inside it, and I'm grateful for the rights. Others struggle hard to win, and you can be sure I'm gonna fight. And they try and take 'em back again. Oh, and everywhere teachers, though some fell along the way, and the words they said still reach us, just like you're teaching me here today. And you may not speak it loud, but it's clear in what you do. And I hope to make you proud, 'cause I borrowed it from you. Pass it along. Pass it along. May it land in careful hands when we're gone. You carry it for a moment, but time won't loan it to you for long. You don't own it. Pass it along. We're talking with Professor Robert Patman, an expert on foreign affairs from the University of Otago, and you can podcast this by going to or oar dot org dot nz and then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. Well, we've been talking to some extent about politics as well as COVID nineteen. It seems to me that. Fear is an element that is most destructive of democracy. Could you comment on? Sorry, I'm, this? I'm just going. To, sorry, Marvin's a helicopter in the background, so I didn't get your question. Oh, it seems to me that fear is is an element that's most destructive of democracy. Could you comment on this in terms of COVID nineteen? Fear, yes, um, and also the exploitation of fear. Yes, but. Um, I think that's true, but in a sense, I suppose one of the frustrations of COVID nineteen is not just the fact that fear is present, and, and it's, it's quite a natural response to something as deadly as COVID nineteen, but also the fact that some people 
um, relatively small number in the case of New Zealand, um, simply disbelieve the science and believe that there's a conspiracy going on whereby the government is trying to, through COVID-19, implement some sort of agenda. And that that's very disappointing that people believe they 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 simply say they say quite honestly i just don't believe it and um you know if you got onto an aircraft if you went if you were a passenger on aircraft you want to be satisfied that the person flying the aircraft had practical training um so that you could have a, a reasonably safe flight and yes with something like COVID-19, there's some people voicing opinions on the internet whose experience is confined to the internet. They're not medical experts, and yet a lot of people are believing them. And that, that worries me a lot. And we seem to be living in a conspiratorial age in some respects. And it's very important that leaders in particular show courage and also use science Um to make sure that they do not pander to such sentiments. But, yeah, so I think certainly there's fear. Um, and uh, But when we talk about fear, it's not just fear of the virus. There's fear of the government has been mobilised in some democracies by some actors which are saying that the government is using COVID-19 to do terrible things. I've heard commentaries in New Zealand from some mainstream, reasonably mainstream, you know, sources talking about the unacceptable lockdowns as if the government has imposed it for some reason to punish people. Well, the reason the lockdowns were occurred is because we didn't have a vaccine initially and it was the only way to contain the spread of a highly infectious virus. And um, I think one thing is clear. Um, those countries which have linked the health of their economy to the health of their people, that is to say, by trying to protect the health of the people through lockdowns, they've done economically better than those that have pre pretended that the health of the economy is somehow separate from the health of the people. In other words, those countries which have tried to maintain an open economy when COVID-19 has been raging have not performed impressively. So, I, I, I you know... It's certainly fear is a worrying aspect of this crisis, um, but I think um, the, the 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 fact that conspiracy theories, um, which have no evidential base, and yet have quite a wide circulation, highlights I think that the social media, which in my respect, in many respects, is wonderful because it it means communication can be extended in a fashion which has never been done before, is susceptible to people who have their own agendas um, and dis actively discourage people from getting vaccinated. We've been through times in the past where fear has played a major role. And one of the attributes of, it seems to me, of uh, Jacinda as Prime Minister is she's done a lot to um, encourage people and to um, avoid fear. 
And have we also in the past, in the um, 1930s, we had economic crises and political crises where people were, where fear was a big thing. And it seems to me that people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Michael Joseph Savage did a lot to, their success was partially due to the fact they were not only had a plans for what society needed and we had the courage to introduce them, but they also had the, the ability to um, overcome fear in the population. Roosevelt, yes, I think it was Roosevelt, wasn't it? The only thing we have to fear, the fear is fear itself. That's yeah. right. And I think you're right. Um, it's important, but I think what was significant about people like Savage and Roosevelt was that they did not only show a willingness to address problems, but uh, they also took active steps which reduced people's fears. For example, in New Zealand, the establishment of the welfare state. For many people, what was frightening about the Great Depression was the fact that people lost their jobs and no longer had the means to feed their families. With the creation of the welfare state, that reduced anxiety quite considerably. Um, at the moment, uh, fear is is perhaps ramped up quite significantly in the world. Um, and we don't have a global mechanism at the moment. The, the World Health Organization um, is essentially an interstate organization and is subject to funding from states. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a bit of a failing, but there was also great fear it's often forgotten during the cold war um and one of the biggest shadows that hung over the cold war was the the ever-present possibility until its termination of a nuclear armageddon and um the cuban missile crisis the yom kippur war and what was called um the um uh, crisis of um 1983 um, in Spitsburg, all occasions where the world toppled or, or, or was on the, teetered on the brink of nuclear war. So that was a major issue. With, with the end of the Cold War, we've had some quite significant problems with the end of the Cold War, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the prospect of a global nuclear war, an unfettered nuclear war, which would result in the destruction of the planet, that prospect has thankfully receded. I think that's one of the places where New Zealand has also shown leadership. Yes, and um, I think one of the challenges for countries like New Zealand and middle powers like France and Germany and others and Australia, Canada, is actually to get out of the habit of expecting great powers to sort out their problems for them because they can't. And, that, you know, that, that, that in a sense causes alarm, but it also causes hope because it means that the smaller and middle powers can play a much more constructive role in international affairs. And uh, the question is, though, whether we're going to step up to the plate. And I think the signs are mixed. We've seen some encouraging signals, which I alluded to earlier, at the APEC meeting and also um, with respect to the Christchurch call. Um, but 
it, it, it is a major challenge and um, it, it means that uh, New Zealand and others, uh, they can't do it on their own, but they can act mm. collectively in a way which they express uh, support for issues which they see as long neglected. Um, some issues, however, even if the middle powers and the small powers get involved, cannot be fixed by their involvement alone. We face some institutional obstacles, such as the fact that five countries in the United Nations Security Council have a privilege that no other countries have, which they can veto anything they don't like, which means that they can block anything they don't like, and that means that there is a whole that has rendered the institution dysfunctional. And we've been talking about how these problems, like climate change, like transnational terrorism, like COVID-19, are too big for states, nation states to solve on their own, or even in coalitions. And yet we don't have the machinery to deal with these problems. And uh, we have to look hard at some of the institutions we do have to see how we can make them more functional. And that's that's one of the challenges that we face. What do we have in the way of um, efforts to get rid of the veto of the five five great powers in the uh, UN? Well, I think there's been, when New Zealand was on the Security Council 2015, 2016, it tried to maximize support for its position by trying to persuade and the French have taken a similar position, trying to persuade the veto-wielding powers to rein in the use of the veto to issues which concern just their pure national interest. But the problem is, <laughs> um, superpowers tend to define their national interest as being far removed from the, where their nation is actually located. And... Um, we saw that um, during the Syrian crisis where Russia vetoed um, a, an effort to bring about a lasting international solution. They vetoed it three times, 2011, 2012. And the United States also doesn't hesitate to threaten to use the veto when any resolution comes up which relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I'm not just saying it's one power. Uh, I'm just saying it, it's that mechanism of the veto which may have been constructive in the immediate aftermath of the second world war for keeping the big powers within the united nations as a new institution it may have been a constructive response to their their concerns that they might get outvoted but we've got a completely different world in the 21st century and the number of members of the united nations has grown from about 50 at its inception to now 193. Also, the, the, you know, there's a number of countries which are not represented in the UN Security Council, which by any measure should be having much more institutional influence than they currently have. So I think that the UN is in need for a, a long due overhaul. And um, we need to have a more functioning uh, United Nations. And simply because we are confronted with these problems which exceed the capacity of nation states to solve. And so international cooperation must be the way forward. Now, I realize what I'm saying is going to take a long time to implement. Um, and possibly it may be two decades before the superpowers 
finally acknowledge that they have only limited capability to deal with many of the problems that confront them and other states. And it's a big step for a great power to acknowledge their influence is limited. It's easier for a small country like New Zealand or even a middle power to concede they do not control their destiny. But for a country like the United States to concede that it's dependent on other countries and it doesn't control its destiny cuts across its national ethos of being a sort of shining city on the hill where everything can be achieved by hard work and determination. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on perspective, it, it, we now live in a world uh, which is, whether we like it or not, interconnected and where many of the problems do not respect borders. And that, that is a qualitatively new situation. And uh, some of these problems are quite urgent. So there's going to be have to, there's going to have to be some hard thinking amongst the great powers. But the people who wish and recognize the need for change in the United Nations, do they have compromises that might be acceptable to the great powers? It's difficult, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, I think France has hinted that it. Uh, all those with the veto jealously guard it. And sometimes people throw up their hands and say, well, look, they're never going to give up that privilege, that perk. And that is a lot of truth in that self-interest rules, but it depends how you look at it. Over time, it may be that as these problems multiply, which can only be resolved internationally, then there may be a recognition that we do need to have a more functional UN Security Council. Most of the world's major problems at the moment in security terms are being neglected because of the way the UN security function operates, which is not the purpose of the organization. The purpose of the organization is to create, um, to uphold peace and security, not undermine it through its dysfunctionality. So there's, there's some th issues that have to be dealt with. But I'm of the view, uh, Marvin, that the great majority of countries in the international system, I'm talking about 190 here, maybe 188, may have to ask for the veto-wielding members of the UN Security Council. I mean, this is an institutional form of inequality in itself. We may, They may have to be asked to present themselves to the General Assembly to explain why they have to have this exclusive power of veto and no one else can have it. All right. As New Zealand and other countries learned um, that we needed to change our responses to other problems from COVID-19, that sometimes the nation state needs to take a, an initiative for, for things like inequality and uh, other problems nations have that we can't just leave it to the market I would hope so um, we're a relatively young species aren't we human beings and we've been in settled societies somewhere between seven and I believe nine thousand years and one would hope that we progress as time goes on and that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes um, 
in other words, that we can learn from the past as, a, as, as opposed to being doomed to repeat the bitter experiences of the past. Uh, as I speak to you, there's something like 32 wars going on around the planet, most of which are internal conflicts. Um, I, I think there is the possibility um, that in the 21st century, we do begin to deal with some of the problems. It's a paradoxical era because never before, you know, we have the potential now to create more wealth than ever before. And yet, if we look around the world, a population of about 7.5 billion people, there's about 800 million to 1 billion, which live on less than $4 US dollars a day. So clearly, this is a major problem. And you could argue, oh, well, that life is unfair. It's always been that way. Um, and that's true to some degree. But we also have to take on a, on board that as the world becomes more interconnected, those who have been disadvantaged have the ability to affect through their actions those who have done very nicely thank you out of the existing situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that's that's expressed by the number of refugees we now have in the world, something like in excess of 60 million people, refugees. And many countries are getting very nervous about the problem of refugees. We've seen tensions recently between Britain and France in Europe over people trying to get into Britain uh, through boats. Um, and what we're not hearing, however, from Britain and France is how can we create a world where people are not fleeing from their own governments? For many people in this world, the biggest sources of abuse in their life are their own governments. Okay, you're saying that we can can learn from the past and improve. Oh, that's a, I think a, so. I mean, it's, I don't think it's going to be that's a, good a place. straight line progression. I think it's going to be zigzags. Okay. It may be two steps forward and one back. I do think, however, I, I, I have the great privilege, Marvin, as you know, of teaching lots of young people, okay. and I'm really convinced that they have both the passion, the intelligence, and the skills to make a real difference in the future. That's a good place. And, uh, and not just in this country, but elsewhere. And That's a good place to end. Yeah. That note of optimism. Thank Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.